you were made to worship. I was made to worship. We were made to worship. That's who we are. That's how God has made us. Not just people in the church, but every human being was made to worship. I mean, look at all the religions around the world. So many different religions. And one of the things we see is that worship is a part of each religion and devotion is a part of each religion in different ways. The Buddhist religion uses chanting and some sorts of yoga as a part of their worship. In Hinduism, people worship and give sacrifices, uh, praying to uh, idols. In Islam, worship is included in the five pillars of Islam, especially in the rote prayers five times a day. In Judaism, we know from the Old Testament that in the time of the tabernacle and then the temple, that sacrifices were given in worship. When you read in the Bible about sacrifices, you need to think worship because that was a part of the worship of the people of Israel. Even in Wicca, there are times of worship, usually at new moons and at the full moon involving certain rituals. I took a course in the sociology of religion, and one of my um, one of the other students wrote a term paper, and the name of his term paper was "Hockey as a Religion in Canada." What do you think? It's a strong argument. I would even argue that people who are atheists worship. They show great devotion to the powers of rationality and the naturalist doctrine. I mean, just try to challenge them in a school setting. I remember uh, one news clip. I think it was a school in Kansas. And in the school, some parents were trying to, to advocate for showing a creationist point of view alongside the evolutionary point of view. And the result was spectacular. I mean, the people who wanted the evolution viewpoint only, the people who were the naturalists, the people who were the atheists, protected their program, their doctrine with religious fervor. Imagine that. But why? I mean, why is worship so important to so many people around the world, so many different situations? I mean, why is worship so widespread? Because we were made to worship. I was made to worship. You were made to worship. That's the way God created us. To worship him. We're made to worship. So why is worship important to all these people in different situations? And why is worship so widespread? We're made to worship. But, you know, there's an important question. And the question is, who or what will you worship? You see, worship always has an object. You worship someone or something. It doesn't stand by itself. Who do you worship? What do you worship? There are many people around the world who worship their ancestors. We saw this when we were in West Africa. Other people worship nature or nature spirits, like a spirit in a tree or things like that. Many religions will worship small physical representations of their God that we call idols. North Koreans worship their leader, calling him dear leader. And they believe that he's divine. They believe the divine spirit of his grandfather rests in him. 
and that the grandfather, the first dear leader, was a, a divinity, was a god. And they worship their leader. And anyone in that country who dares not worship their leader, i.e. Christians, is severely persecuted. You know, that's like the emperor cult at the time the book of Revelation was written. At the time that John wrote this book, there was an emperor cult, and the emperor wanted to be worshipped. And many people worshipped the emperor and persecuted anyone who did not worship with them. But here's the bottom line. Yes, we're made to worship, but who or what do you worship? That's the question. That's, that's the question you need to answer this morning. Who do you worship or what do you worship? Well, Revelation chapter 4, in Revelation chapter 4, John gives us a stunning picture of God. And God who is worshipped, the God we're called to worship, God who is majesty, he's sovereign, and he is on his throne. So let's read Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to ask you to stand for this reading of the Word of God, please. Revelation chapter 4, reading the 11 verses. This is John writing. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne in heaven, with one seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Here ends this reading of the word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Who or what do you worship? 
A couple of weeks ago, I gave a short definition of worship as celebrating God, and we looked at some of the characteristics of God that John brings up in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Well, I'd like to expand that a little bit today and say that worship is heartfelt celebration of God and his worthiness. Heartfelt celebration of God and his worthiness. And that's what we see in chapter 4 of the book of Revelation. Now, by heartfelt, I mean devotion, something that, that catches you, something that grabs your heart. Worship is an active response to God, whereby we declare his worth. And worship isn't passive, passive it's participatory. If you're not participating, you're not worshiping. Worship isn't simply a mood. It's a response to God and who he is and what he's done for us. And worship isn't just a feeling. Worship is a declaration of who God is, of his greatness. The English word worship comes from a word, an old Anglo-Saxon word, which is worth-ship. Worship means to attribute worth to someone or to, to something. To worship God is to ascribe to him supreme worth, for he alone is worthy. We worship God when we ascribe to him the glory due his name. Well, what is the essence of worship? It's the celebration of God. When we worship God, we, look, we make God look good with the words coming out of our mouths. We know what celebration looks like. I mean, we all have experienced various celebrations in life. A thoughtful gift is a celebration of a birthday. A special evening out is a celebration of an anniversary. A week or a weekend or a week away can be a celebration of a wedding anniversary. Caleb and Emily are away this week celebrating the first year of marriage, their anniversary. On an everyday level, even just a loving embrace is a celebration of marriage. A warm eulogy at a funeral is a celebration of life, often of a life well lived. In the same way, a worship service is a celebration of God. A worship service is a celebration of God, but worship can go wrong. I want to give you a couple of reasons why worship can go wrong. When worship goes wrong, it's no longer truly Christian worship. So here are two ways that worship can go wrong. First of all, worship goes wrong when it's not from the heart. Our purpose in approaching God, our purpose in approaching the Bible, our, our purpose in meeting together on Sunday, meeting, Sunday morning is not just to fill our head with more knowledge. That's important. But it's beyond that. It goes beyond that. What's important is not heads full of knowledge, but hearts full of worship. We need to go beyond the knowledge to knowing God. And knowing God means to be in relationship with him, not just knowing about God, not just having lots of facts about God, but being in relationship with God, which we have through Jesus Christ. And perhaps even this morning, there's, there's someone here that's, or, or listening to me online that's coming to that point where the facts that you know are not enough. And it's time to move into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Through receiving Jesus into your life. Coming to him for forgiveness and receiving his brand new life. That's how we know God. 
There's a story in the Old Testament that shows us that the heart is so important in worship, that it's essential. Now, it's the story of Cain and Abel. Okay, now you're probably thinking, is that the brothers that fought? Yeah, it is, it is, it is. But that came a little later. See, Cain and Abel were very different sort of people. And Cain was a farmer, he, he had gardens, and Abel, his brother, was a shepherd, and he had sheep. And so they brought offerings to God, sacrifices. What do you think of when you think of sacrifice? Worship, right? This is an act of worship. So they bring their sacrifices to God. And this, the sacrifice of Abel was accepted. The sacrifice of Cain was not accepted. Now, why? I mean, you just you start to think, why? Now, I've heard an explanation that the reason that uh, Abel's sacrifice was accepted and not Cain's was because Cain didn't shed blood and Abel did. Abel gave his lamb and he gave the fat of the lamb, which is like the best part, and he gave that to God. But when we continue reading into the book of Revelation, there are, there are sacrifices that are bloodless. Grains and things like that. I mean, these can be sacrifices to God. So, no, the issue is deeper than that. Much deeper than that. Why is it that the sacrifice of Abel is accepted and not the sacrifice of Cain? Well, most likely Abel's offering was accepted by God because of his heart attitude. Now, Abel shows up in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11:4, and this is what we read. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And in the passage in Genesis, what we read is God looked with favor on Abel and his offering. It wasn't the offering alone. It was Abel. It was his faith. It was what was in his heart as he came to worship God with his sacrifice. So we conclude that Cain did not come with his heart to give his sacrifice and did not give it in faith. Maybe it's just like it's something he felt he should do. And so he did it, but his heart wasn't in it. We see the same message in the prophets in the Old Testament. For instance, Isaiah chapter one. Now God is speaking uh, in this passage and, and God is talking to the Israelite people through Isaiah. And God says, in this passage, when you come to appear before me, who has required you, this, this, this trampling of my courts? He's talking about their worship. He's talking about what they're doing in the temple and calling worship. Bring no more vain offerings. Vain means it's empty. It doesn't mean anything. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, which actually God has said, this is a way to worship me. But now God is saying it in terms of them. I can't endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my, my eyes from you. So spreading out hands was in worship and in prayer. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Worship must be from a heart, a heart that's right with God. So the people that are being addressed here are the kind of people who would uh, go all week 
doing terrible things. Great injustice to the people around them. And then they'd come to temple on the Sabbath and they'd give their sacrifices and figure out that's okay. And God would say, no, that's, that's not okay. That's not okay. A wrong heart results in wrong actions and wrong worship and a right heart results in right actions and right worship. Worship goes wrong when it's not from the heart. But here's another possibility. Worship goes wrong when it has the wrong object. What do you worship? Who do you worship? We can worship the wrong person or the wrong object. And when we do, when worship goes wrong this way, it is not true Christian worship. Now, we can see this in the book of Revelation. For instance, in Revelation 9.20, we read, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot, which cannot see or hear or walk. Their worship had the wrong focus. It wasn't God. It was these demons and, and idols. That's what they were worshiping, and that's why God was judging them. Now, even John, who, through whom God is writing this book, John's writing the book, God's writing the book through John. It's a revelation. Even John, in Revelation 19.10, we read, Then I, that's John, fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. But the angel said to me, You must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. I, mean, I can't even imagine the beauty of this angelic being that John was seeing. I, I, I can't even imagine. But it would be an incredible beauty, the beauty of heaven. I can understand John wanting to fall down and worship this heavenly being. But the angel says, don't do that. I'm created like you meaning only God can be worshipped. It's too easy to worship people, especially like a charismatic kind of person. I mean, small c. You know, the kind of person just draws other people to them and enthuses other people. It's, it's too easy to worship other people. I listened to a podcast by Christianity Today on Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. Uh, Mark Driscoll planted Mars Hill in Seattle. And Seattle is apparently a terrible place to try and plant a church. Uh, Seattle's holds very resistant to churches. But Mark Driscoll planted this church. And amazingly, over the years, it grew. It blossomed. Mark Driscoll was one of those kind of people, like so charismatic, drawing people to himself. He had great power over people because they gave him that power over him. And unhappily, he abused that power and in fact abused some of those same people. We need to be careful about putting pastors on a pedestal. I mean, we, we use that terminology about putting pastors on a pedestal. Well, you know what that means? It means lifting them up. What do you do in your worship? You lift up. You need to be really careful about putting pastors on a pedestal, worshiping them because they fall off. Every pastor has clay feet, including these ones. Every pastor has clay feet. It's too easy to worship like a pastor that's so much loved and, and to think the church can't go ahead without this person. But we must worship God and God alone. 
and realize that the church is the church of Jesus Christ. And as we saw last week, Jesus has the church in his right hand. He has West Village Church in his strong right hand. Worship is heartfelt celebration of God. In Revelation chapter 4, there's no problem of a wrong worship, either from a wrong heart or a wrong object. God is the one worshipped. And he's worshipped with all of the being of those worshipers before him. And this worship in heaven is true Christian worship. And our worship on earth, even if we have a fantastic worship service, whatever your definition of that is, what happens here is just a copy of what's happening in heaven. So look at our passage. John starts by saying, after this, I looked, verse 1. So it's a formula that John uses to introduce another vision. It doesn't mean it's chronological in a time sense. He uses this uh, four other times. After this, I looked. It introduces a new vision. A door standing in heaven, verse 1. Well, the way to heaven is like wide open to John. The, the heaven is used to refer to God's dwelling place and the place where God chooses to reveal himself and, and the place where God has his throne. And John sees this. And he says, And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Who is the first voice that John heard? Chapter 1. Who is the first voice that John heard? Now, in the first part of chapter 1, John talks about God and who he is. But then he hears a voice. It's the glorified Jesus. The glorified Jesus Christ is giving this invitation to John to come up to heaven and to see the worship of heaven. John is called to be a witness to this heavenly place. And he talks about what must take place well, the things which must take place are things that are happening as an outworking of God's divine will. Not they might take place, not they may take place, but they must take place. Why? Because God says they are going to take place. They must take place. They're part of God's divine plan. And again, in verse 2, John says he's in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present in this worship scene both here in, in the description of the seven spirits in, in verse 5. And the seven spirits, of course, as we saw last week, it's a sevenfold, sevenfold spirit of God. The Holy Spirit uh, shown in his sevenfold way. So what does John see? John sees God is worshipped as majestic, sovereign, and unfathomable. God is majestic, sovereign, and unfathomable. That's what we see as the passage continues. So the throne, verse 2. Well, the throne is mentioned in almost every chapter of the book of Revelation, and it's mentioned 12 times here in chapter 4, plus the thrones of the elders. So throne is really important to this book and especially important to this chapter. And everything that we see in the chapter is happening around the throne that John sees. The throne is the focus of the chapter and symbolizes that absolute sovereignty of God and his divine will. God's will will be done. God is in control. Even if it doesn't look like it, which, I mean, it didn't for the first people 
who received this letter. It didn't look like that for John. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. It's a penal island. He hasn't gone there for a cruise. He's in exile. He's a prisoner. Things do not look good. But even in the midst of this one, life seems like it's falling down. God is in control. Even in your life, if it looks like things are just falling down, This is written to encourage not just the first readers of the book of Revelation, but to encourage every one of us. If your life is falling down, if it's falling apart, remember, God is on the throne. God is in control. Well, John's readers would be familiar with the earthly thrones uh, and really be deeply troubled about Caesar's throne and all that that meant. This vision of God reminds them that there is a throne that's above all thrones, all earthly thrones. It's the throne of God. And we read in verse 3, he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So John uses precious jewels to try and describe what he's seeing. Remember, it's beyond description of human language. So John is trying to help us see what he, what he saw. And he uses these precious jewels to describe this jasper, carnelian, and, and emerald. And at the time of John, there was a lack of scientific terminology about all these different jewels and what they meant. And so when we go to translate them today, we do our best to translate them. And that's why if you look at different versions, you'll see that there are different translations. Because John didn't have the sort of scientific approach that we have today in terms of uh, precious stones. But the point is, no matter what the point is, God sees, John sees God's splendor, his majesty. And he tries to describe this with these jewels and their color. The one seated on the throne. Now, just a little note. You see, John was a Jew. Jews at that time, and even now, Don't use the name of God lest you inadvertently take the name of the Lord in vain. One of the Ten Commandments, right? So John refers to him as the one seated on the throne, but he's talking about God. And he doesn't appear in human form, but he's shown as this brilliant light reflected from these precious stones. Well, this is really not a new idea in the Bible. Psalm 104 verse 2 talks about God and says, He wraps himself in a light as with a garment. And Paul described God as dwelling in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The rainbow is a symbol. It's a symbol of God's covenant. Now, I know that in the last few decades, other groups than Christian groups of trying to take the rainbow for themselves. But I'm telling you, that's our symbol first. And the rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy. And this rainbow encircles the throne. It goes around and around, a sign of the eternity of the rainbow and, and God's covenant of love and mercy. That's what the rainbow means. You can't approach the throne of God without encountering his mercy and his love. It's all around the throne. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, verse 5. And in the Old Testament, the thunder and the lightning was often associated with with God and his appearance, like at Mount Sinai, the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's symbolic of the awesome power and majesty 
of God. It was awe-inspiring. Have you ever... Have you ever stood out when a thunderstorm is coming? Or maybe you have a gazebo that's all glass. And you see the storm coming. And you hear it. You see the lightning. You hear the thunder. And the clouds roll over. It's awesome. It's just awesome. And that's the kind of thing that John has as a part of the vision that he's seeing here. And he sees the awesomeness of God. Think about that next time a thunderstorm comes. There are 24 elders, verse 4. These elders are probably a superior order of angels. They represent the worship of heaven at its best. And these angelic beings are representatives of the whole body of believers. So they likely symbolize the unity of God's people. So the Old Testament being the head of 12 tri- heads of 12 tribes, the New Testament by the, led by the 12 apostles. And we see this later in the book of Revelation in the New Jerusalem, which has 12 gates and 12 foundations. And it's said that they are the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. So here in what John is seeing, probably here the 12, 24 elders represent all of God's unified people together. And they're seated on 24 thrones. So again, thrones represent power and majesty. And they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. White's the color of triumph. So when a Roman general would go out to war and conquer, he would come back and he would have a victory parade. And uh, in the victory parade would be all the captives that he caught and, and anything else he took that would be his reward for uh, this war that he had conducted. And he would be dressed in a white robe, the sign of a victor, but also for us the sign of the righteousness we have in Christ. And the crowns of gold emphasize the highest state of these beings. Worship in heaven is continuous whether it's these elders or the four creatures surrounding the throne. God is worshipped as majestic, sovereign, and unfathomable. And God is worshipped as holy. Look at verse 6. And before the throne, there was, was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So God is separate, and, and holiness means to be separate. And the sea of glass would remind people of, of God's being separate, remind John of the separateness of God, the holiness of God. And the sea of glass, like crystal, it would be really rare at this time. And one of the things that we need to do is we need to put out of our mind the way we think of glass or mirrors. Because at John's time, they didn't have the technology to produce glass like we do. When we see glass, we see through it. Am I right? right? You look out your windows and you see what's on the other side. Hopefully, without any problems, unless there's dirt on the window. By the time of John, there was no glass like that. Glass was dark. It was opaque. You couldn't see through it. And that's what we need to have in our imaginations when we think about this sea of glass like crystal. And it would be magnificent. And perhaps what it does is it, it reflects all that incredible light coming from the throne. And so you have the light from the throne, you have the light reflected in the glass. And it just highlights the magnificence of God and his holiness. He's separate, he's pure, without flaw. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 6. Four living creatures on each side of the throne. These living creatures seem to come uh, as a blend from what we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1, and the seraphim in Isaiah chapter 6. And they're full of eyes. It means they see everything. Like a lion representing the wild animals. Like an ox representing domesticated animals. With the face of a man representing all humanity. Like an eagle in flight representing Gert representing birds. So, so these four living creatures around the throne representing all of God's creation. All of God's creatures represented before the throne. And we have a continuous refrain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say it with me. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Say it again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they just keep saying it. 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 For God is holy. In the scriptures, whenever there's a repetition, a doubling up, especially in the book of Psalms, like in poetry, then that uh, repetition means it's emphatic. And the rare, rare times when you get a triplet, like holy, 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 it means that it's ultimate. God's holiness is ultimate. There's nothing like it. Well, God is also worshipped as the eternal one as we've just said, who is and was and is to come in an age of turmoil. God's power and eternal being ensure that his holiness will triumph over evil. Now, John needed to hear that, that God's holiness will triumph over evil. And we need to hear that as well. Is your life in turmoil? God's holiness will triumph over evil. And he's the God who's eternal, who was and is and is to come, who was and is and is to come. God's already in your tomorrow. What are you worried about? In tomorrow? God's already there. He's the eternal one who is and was and is to come. And God is worshiped as creator. In verse 11, we read, for you have created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is creator of all things. He has a purpose for all things. God is your creator. And God has a purpose for you. He does. That's what the Bible teaches. God has a purpose for you. Your creator made you on purpose. He made you for a purpose. God has a purpose for you. And everyone is important as they fulfill that purpose. So God is worshipped as majestic and sovereign and unfathomable. God is worshipped as holy, as eternal one, as creator. And so we can say, worship is heartfelt celebration of God and his worth. These creatures constantly praise God declaring his worthiness, giving him glory and honor and thanks. And the, uh, the elders also constantly praise God. And their song underlines his worthiness. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. 
and by your will, they exist and were created. It's ascribing to God worth, worth-ship. Give him glories, praises, giving him honor and all things holding him high and acknowledging his power. Not just in creation, but in our lives. You know, in John's day, the Roman emperors loved to be greeted with, Worthy art thou, O Caesar. There was no humility there. But in particular, Emperor Domitian, under whose reign John was exiled to this island, under whose reign many Christians were persecuted and many died, Domitian loved to be greeted with, my Lord and my God. Well, of course, for the Christians, the only one that they could say that to is the one on the heavenly throne. The claims of all others are blasphemous. So, how can we improve our worship? I just want to just give a few ideas here. How can we improve our worship? It's so important. Well, I think, first of all, we can develop a renewed reverence for God. Now, that's hard. We live in a trivial age. I mean, what do you think of with reverence? Probably very little. Who do you think of with reverence? Is there anyone? But we can develop reverence, even though it's not easy for us. We aren't used to it, but we can develop this reverence for God. Maybe start by taking this chapter and meditating on it. Here's homework for you this week. Read chapter 4 every day at least once. Slow. Slow. Read Revelation chapter 4. And if you want a little more homework, read Revelation chapter 5 because the two chapters go together and we'll come to chapter 5 next week. Chapter 4, worshiping God. Chapter 5, worshiping Jesus. We can develop our awareness of of God, who he is, and having reverence for God and his awesomeness by reading his word. We can make a point of learning about God. I mean, knowledge is not the end all and be all, but knowledge is important. Who God is. We could read the Bible, the book of Revelation. We could read other good books like Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Excellent book. And turn your reading to praise and worship and prayer. We can glory in his name, declare his majesty to to him, to ourselves, and I mean to others, if anybody will listen. We can honor his name at all times, whenever you say it. Do not take his name in vain. That means emptiness. Don't give God's name emptiness. I mean, we have some expressions in our society that just roll off people's tongues. They don't even think of it. But saying things like, God, I wish you could do that. Well, I mean, if you're really talking to God, okay, that's good. But if not, that is taking his name in vain. That dishonors him. Or things like, OMG, oh my God. Well, if you're really worshiping God, oh my God. Wonderful. But you and I both know that most of the times that's not what's happening. And there are a lot of people that use these expressions that may not even believe in God. We're called to honor his name. I worked in construction for a while. And one man especially liked to use the name of Jesus Christ. He'd say things like, Jesus Christ, you're slow, and stuff like that. He didn't believe in Jesus. But we do. We do. And so we're called to honor God 
with our reference to him. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to condemn you if you use these kind of expressions. Maybe no one's ever said this to you. But think about it. Taking the Lord's name in vain means giving it emptiness. It means dishonoring him. And we're called to honor him. Well, another idea, we can practice his presence. Maybe you've heard this, a little booklet by uh, Brother Andrew. Uh, it's not by him, actually. It's, it's, he was a, a monk that worked in a kitchen, washing up dishes many, many years, like hundreds of years ago. And he had this way of talking to God through his whole day, of just spending time with God through his whole day. And that apparently was so unusual and so marvelous that someone interviewed him, wrote it down, and they produced a little booklet called Practicing the Presence. But that's what it is. It's living in constant conversation with God, knowing him daily. You know, there's a modern book that's very similar. It's called The Sacred Mundane by Carrie Patterson. The Sacred Mundane by Carrie Patterson. I loved reading it because she does the same kind of thing, um, practicing the presence. And what does that mean in our everyday life? You can use familiar objects to remember God. I heard a man say that every time he came to a red light, instead of complaining about the red lights, he would spend that time praying. And he had particular people that he prayed for at every red light. Instead of seeming too long, they seemed too short. You can have a holy place. You can have a chair. That's your prayer chair. Have you ever tried that? A chair. When you sit in that chair, you sit there to pray. Maybe have your devotions, and that's your prayer chair. That can be helpful as well. Practicing the present means that all of life becomes a worship service. I mean, think of it. I mean, this is a challenge. I'm preaching to myself, not just you. But if we could all spend the week in worship of God, and we came together, not with a worship deficit, but having worshiped all week long intentionally, we came together, what a wonderful time we'd have worshiping collectively, worshiping our God. We can cultivate a deepened sense of the community of God and, and uh, come together as brothers and sisters. We don't use the terms brothers and sisters now. Um, I'm not saying that we should, certainly not in an empty way, but we can acknowledge we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And remember what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we can remember, we can remember that the heavenly worship is happening right now, in the right now of every day. And our worship is just a copy of what's happening there. And when we join in worship, we do join the angels in heaven who are worshiping right now. As one song says, this is holy ground. When we come together to worship Jesus, this is holy ground. We're standing on holy ground. For the Lord is here, and where he is is holy. I know that there are angels all around. Let's praise Jesus now. We're standing in his presence on holy ground. So reverence for God and his holiness doesn't mean we need a funeral. I hope you get that point. It's celebration. We don't have to have glum faces. But we come together. We celebrate the Lord. Now I'm going to end with an invitation. An invitation to enter in. Let's go back to verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John receives an invitation, an open door. But you know what? 
I think that invitation is for all of us. We all have an invitation to come to the throne room of God. And we know that by virtue of the fact that all the living creatures, the elders are there representing us. They're there already. And the invitation is for us, not just for them. We know that because in the book of Hebrews, we have the author saying to us, on the basis of Jesus, our great high priest, who also is there, he says, let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. That's what John is saying, right? The throne of grace. Draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in times of need. And the apostle Paul asserts in Ephesians 2.6, God raised him up, meaning Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have an invitation. We have an open invitation to come before the throne of God. Jesus says to us, come. Now, compared to what John saw, we're, we're probably blind. But even if that's the case, we can trust that what he saw is real, that God is real, that the throne is real, the throne in heaven is real, and that's the throne we come before when we worship him and when we come in prayer. That's the throne we come before. Will you come and worship him? Will you respond to his invitation to come and to worship? Amen.